This podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation News, the publication for professionals working in the UK and Ireland's medical device industry. Subscribe now at medtechnews.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTool Podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest news and discussion in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, the editor of MedTech Innovation News. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Anne Blackwood from Health Enterprise East, as we discuss equality and diversity in MedTech. We talk about why representation in both the NHS and industry needs to improve, how it can improve, as well as evidence showing how greater diversity at boardroom level improves decision-making. Anne, first of all, thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, I wanted to start with the issue of equality and diversity in MedTech because I understand that you're working on a paper or a report. First of all, can you give us some insight as to what we can expect from it? Yes, of course. So uh, the report looks at um, opportunities to promote equality and diversity in the MedTech industry and and in particular ways in which organisations, whether they're uh, within the NHS or within industry, can recruit, motivate, retain and and support people from from all backgrounds in life. And that's important for two reasons, really. One is the medtech industry is is clearly a key sector within the UK economy. Uh, It's an employer of um, 130,000 people, over 4,000 companies, contributing around 25 billion to the UK economy. Um, many of those companies are, are small and medium-sized uh, entities, um, and um, you know they are engines really of innovation and technology um, uh, within um, the UK economy. And, and technology is changing our lives um, uh, in ways that are, you know, uh, nowhere more evident than in healthcare, and particularly on the back of the the uh, the, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, and I think there are, um, as an industry, we in the medtech industry, and, and I, I can talk about some of the statistics later, there are opportunities for us to widen participation um, of people from other backgrounds in life. So, you know, both in terms of gender and also racial um, balance, um, uh, I think we're still falling short um, on um, really equity of, uh, of those things within the medtech industry and, and within uh, the healthcare sector more widely. Um, and we know from various research that has been done that widening participation from, to people from other backgrounds um, helps to lead to you know, better decision-making in the boardroom, better equity of access for everyone, um, so there, there are lots of good reasons why promoting equality and diversity uh, within our industry um, uh, can lead to both economic and societal benefits. Um, but I think the thing that we have to think about is how uh, we in healthcare in particular can lead that conversation through our actions and decisions and, and not just through talking about the issue because uh, there's a lot of talk. Um, uh, but um, really, ha- have things really changed that much in the in the last few years? Okay, I just want to pick up on the the point where you say that uh, that there is research in this area that shows that you know, wider access or wider participation of 
of across the spectrum basically that leads to better decision making what what research is to suggest that is it a case of it it caters for a wider section of society and therefore there's more views heard around the table or is it uh, i mean I'll, I'll leave this open to you but that, that that's how i'd see it if uh, if it's a case of there's a there is a wider you know wider point of view wider spectrum of people contributing to the debate or contributing to decision making then you, you inevitably get better informed decisions. Yeah, so I think um, so McKinsey and Company have um, done quite a lot of work um, in this area just in terms of analysing the, the economic performance of companies. So there, there's been a series of, of three reports called uh, Diversity Matters or the most recent one, Diversity Wins, which looked at um, you know what, what difference can inclusion make uh, in terms of uh, better decision-making in the boardroom. And um, they carried out a survey of around a thousand um, large corporates um, across 15 different countries, um, a a large number of sectors. Um, And their analysis showed that companies in the top quartile of of gender diversity on executive teams were 25% more likely um, to experience above average growth than peer companies in the fourth quartile. Um, So, and, and indeed the higher the representation in terms of diversity, the higher likelihood of outperforming um, their peers. Um, and they found similar findings in terms of ethnic and, and cultural diversity as well. So I think, you know, there, there is um, uh, plenty of evidence there that um, having um, more diversity in executive teams improves company performance. And I think part of the, the reason for that is, is um, you know, having that wider participation, understanding, particularly in healthcare, who the consumers of healthcare are, and the fact um, that um, you know we come from all walks of life, we have different needs um, and um, different abilities to access healthcare, and understanding those needs um, drives better decision making, drives drives better services for for consumers, and it drives better um, uh, products um, as well. So, um, you know, just to give you. Um, perhaps an example of um, something that arose during the, the COVID pandemic. And this is research that has been around for probably around 15 years, but um, you'll know that um, pulse oximeters um, have been widely used during the COVID pandemic to help monitor um, symptoms um, of people suffering from uh, COVID and particularly long COVID. Um, and indeed, a number of doctors have been recommending that pulse oximeters um, are used in the home. Um, to help uh, people monitor symptoms so that they can um, perhaps get earlier awareness of the fact that they've got low blood oxygen levels um, before they even notice other symptoms um, uh, of uh, of their condition. Um, But there's been research available for a number of years that suggests that actually pulse oximeters don't work as well on people with darker pigmentation of the skin. Um, and that research has been available for, for a number of years, but actually nobody really has thought, well, what are we going to do about this? Um, uh, so, um, you know, there's, there's now been um, a study by the, um, I think it's an independent body called the NHS uh, Race and, and Health Observatory, um, who've looked at this issue in terms of, specifically in terms of pulse oximeters, um, and recommended that we look at the technology there and how we can make it work better on people with um, darker skin. 
um, uh, so that um, uh, you know they can also monitor and and um, uh, have better control of their uh, and awareness of their symptoms. So I think you know by having wider um, uh, diversity around the boardroom table, uh, whether it's in the NHS or whether it's in um, healthcare companies. It's just making people be aware of and thinking about different issues and, and recognizing that uh, we are all different, whether that's through our genetics, through um, the color of our skin, um, or um, perhaps our um, you know, health, health inequalities in terms of um, you know, considerations we have to make in terms of um, who has access to high-speed broadband um, or who is who has mobility and is able to actually access services. Um, so the more that we include diversity around the boardroom, whether that's in age, in gender, um, or in um, ethnic minorities, backgrounds, um, the more differences of opinions and, and viewpoints and representation we have around the boardroom, and the more likely we are to design better services and better products um, it's interesting. You've actually uh, touched on a couple of points that I've heard, I've heard before. One in particular about uh, the technology used, but I, I think if we can link that to the the, uh, the amount of people in an executive positions, you know, if they're diverse enough, it seems to be a case of how one affects the other. In that case, that was clearly a case of there was there wasn't the representation needed at, at boardroom level, in effect, for. You know, for us to acknowledge in the early stage that these ox these oxymeters didn't didn't work properly. Um, this is not just a case of this is not just limited to medtech or life sciences, is it? This is a societal issue. But in terms of medtech or or life sciences, indeed, does it stand out in any way com in compared to other industries? Is it is it be is it better including you know, more a more diverse culture, or, or is it worse off, or is it hard to judge? I mean, I I I would probably argue that that we're in the middle of the pack. Um, we're, we're we're probably not the worst, but but we're certainly uh, not the best either. And um, I think that's an opportunity for us because I think we should be leading the conversation and we should be leading taking action um, rather than being. Um, you know, kind of no better than average. So, you know, if you, if you look at the statistics in terms of, um, you know, gender inequality or, or um, ethnic diversity around the boardroom, you know, in med tech companies, less than 20% of med tech company executive peers are women. Um, and, and actually those percentages have been going up over the last few, few years, but only by one, two, three percent. Um, so we're not making massive strides. And if you look at NHS trust boards, for example, and, and you know, the NHS workforce is, 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 is pretty diverse, as you know, but the higher up in those organisations you go, the less diverse they get. And still in 2018, you know, less than 8% of NHS trust board members identified as being from non-white ethnic minority groups. Um, so, you know, there, there are some big, um, uh, there, there, there's still a lot of gains, I think, that we as an industry can make, um, both in the public and private sector. Um, and we should be leading this conversation because we, we understand how this impacts every aspect of people's lives. You know, health impacts 
both both wealth um, and um, you know and health um, because if people aren't well they can't work they can't be economically productive so we should be leading this conversation um, and um, you know we, there's certainly um, been a lot of talk um, about um, diversity and, and equality of access for all um, but I don't think that we're there, there yet by any manner of means. It's funny you've made uh, the connection between uh, wealth and health that we've uh, that we've constantly heard of throughout the pandemic, for example, uh, and everyone's spoken about that uh, it, it should be a catalyst for change. Uh, I'm guessing in, in equality and diversity is no, is no exception in this case. In terms of you know we, we've seen that uh, COVID, for example, has affected black and minority ethnic communities a lot a lot more, and it's affected the poor poor people a lot more. I think there's been a case of, uh, I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head here, I've not got this in front of me, but I think that in some cases that men haven't exactly been forthcoming in, you know, in terms of, you know, reporting their symptoms properly and sometimes it's, you know, affected, affected them more than women, etc. I mean, there's, if there's ever a time to actually look again in terms of how we operate in terms of but it, 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 as, a, as an industry, it's now, surely. I, I agree. And I think there are, um, you know, there are a lot of benefits um, uh, to um, having um, more diverse um, uh, decision making um, and, and empowering people from different backgrounds to get more, um, uh, to, to get more funding, to start more businesses, um, to get more involved in, in, in uh, driving sort of growth. Um, and if we can't do that in healthcare, then um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what industry we can. Um, and, I, and I think there has been some good progress. To be fair, you know, there are lots of new initiatives um, looking at how we can better support people, um, both um, from a very early age in terms of you know how do we get more people, um, more girls and, um, and people from ethnic minorities into um, sort of studying STEM subjects beyond sort of GCSE level. Um, so, you know, those numbers um, can still grow. And then once they get into the workplace, you know, how can we support people um, to move up, um, uh, be promoted and, and move up into uh, more senior management positions and on into boards? Um, how do we support women and ethnic minorities to get a greater share of venture capital funding, for example. So again, you know, those numbers um, are, are still pretty low. I, I saw a statistic um, from last year that said, you know, for every pound of VC investment in the UK, all female founder teams get less than one pence. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a, a pretty wide gap um, to plug. So, I think there are lots of opportunities, both economically and, and for society, if we can promote wider inclusion in the healthcare industry. Um, and I think the benefits are clear, but it's it's partly about how do we get buy-in? How do we persuade people that increasing diversity brings innovation and it brings opportunity? It gives um, opportunity for better services and better products, um, better customer service. Um, it improves economic performance. Um, you know, arguably it will improve survival. You know, companies that don't innovate in the healthcare space will not survive. And we've seen that very much in the last year. Um, and in order to get buy-in from people in more senior positions, more privileged positions, 
you know, we need to educate them, we need to make sure they're accountable, and then we need to empower people below them um, to step up into those positions of power um, and then use their, their influence to, to create change. Yeah, you've mentioned buy-in though. It's actually going to come on to this a little later, but since you've mentioned it anyway, you know, change does need buy-in from those who are in privileged or high-status positions. And I, I believe it's in everybody's interest that there are more, you know, that everything's as diverse as it can possibly be because look at the society we have. And I think it, it, it needs to work for everyone and especially in healthcare and life sciences. But how do you manage to get buy-in from those at the top? Is it just education? I, th I think I said. I think it's education. I think it's accountability. So being accountable for the decisions uh, that they make, um, and then I think it's also about empowering people, um, empowering people to step up into those sort of more high privileged um, and, and elevated positions within companies. So how do we train people, support them, encourage them to participate and to think of themselves? People who wouldn't naturally think, you know, actually, you know, I could be COO or I could be CEO of this company one day. You know, how do we actually help people um, dream big, if you like? And that starts very early. Um, you know, we've seen that around the, the gender issues in terms of encouraging girls um, to study STEM subjects is, you know, people often don't think that, um, you know, whenever I talk to nurses within the NHS, they often say, you know, they've come up, they've, they've seen a need, they've come up with an idea of, of addressing it. And, and when I say, you know, when I call them an innovator, they say, oh, no, I'm not an innovator, I'm just a nurse, you know. And you say, well, actually, you know, you're not just a nurse. You know, you can be an agent for change, you can be an innovator, you can be an influencer. Um, and I think through COVID, one of the things that perhaps we've seen change culturally is, is that, um, you know, that kind of integration of, of effort where you know, traditionally in the NHS, people have had very siloed roles. You know, my role is, you know, nurse practitioner. I do, you know, a very specific job. Um, you know, I'm the IT person. I'm the procurement person. But actually, because of the crisis, we've seen much more flexibility in the, in the workforce in terms of we've had physios working on the ICU um, unit, kind of pro, uh, proning patients, turning them over. Um, we've seen IT managers getting involved in procurement. You know, we've seen much more flexibility in terms of the workforce. And, you know, clearly within the NHS, there are very specialised roles that, um, you know, to need many years of training to, to carry out effectively. But I think, you know, a more modern, flexible workforce, um, both in and out of the NHS, um, is, is clearly in everyone's benefit. Um, and... I hope that, you know, one thing that people at the top have learned from the last year is that actually putting people in silos um, and um, encouraging them only to focus on one aspect of, of what their organisation as a whole does um, leads to kind of suboptimal outcomes, really. Um, and that collaboration across, um, across functionalities, across different parts of organisations, even between organisations that, that, you know, in the past haven't really collaborated um, uh, very much. So there's, you know, there's just been a white paper around um, integrated services in the NHS. And clearly, you know, vertical integration between the NHS and, and social care and other parts of the system is, 
is something that's been on the, the back burner for, for many years and, and we still haven't properly addressed. But actually, even horizontal integration and giving the opportunity for trust to work, collaborate with each other across larger geographies. So we've seen patients being moved around the country to where there was capacity in ICU. So patients moved out of London, for example, in the second lockdown into other hospitals. That sort of collaboration just hasn't been there um, previously because a need wasn't driving it. Um, but actually, you know, to the public, when they look at the National Health Service, they, they, they see the badge, they see the logo, and they assume that these things already happened, that, you know, the kind of collaboration across organisational boundaries or across, you know, between clinicians in, in different um, uh, clinical specialities, they assume that collaboration already happens. But, uh, but actually, it, it, it has, because the NHS is very hierarchical, um, it, it often hasn't happened um, and one of the things that I hope that we've broken down is look what we can do when we collaborate and when we work together. Um, look how much we can achieve in actually a very short space of time um, if we collaborate together, if we break down those boundaries, um, rather than kind of everyone working in their silos. Um, and I think, you know, for, for the people at the top, it's seeing those practical changes, seeing how quickly things could be done when it was driven by, um, you know, the crisis. Um, and one of the things that we need to really focus on over the next few months is as the NHS begins to get back to um, uh, something um, close to normal service, although it's, it's a long way from that when you look at the backlog currently of patients waiting for treatment is how do we make sure that those rapid changes kind of stick? Um, and actually, how do we then build on that um, to create sort of lasting change um, uh, across uh, healthcare systems? There's a couple of words that came, or a couple of phrases rather, that came to mind when uh, going to your answer there, because you, you, you talked about this, you know, greater flexibility in the workforce that's happened since COVID. But there's also this, you know, question of, you know, staff working in silos almost, you know, you know, prior to it. It's a case of there's got to be this willingness from those at the top to allow this greater flexibility because otherwise people will develop a, an element of imposter syndrome when they're actually invited to, you know, try and apply, you know, for, for a job that's just a little bit beyond the skill set that they're already in. I mean... Uh, that that's what struck me from what you from what you said about uh, the, the nurse being an innovator when, when they just say oh no I'm just a nurse. Yeah, and, I, and so I think I think you're right. I think I mean this has to be the um, you know led from the top, and I think um, you know the language that we use and the incentives that we can put in place um, to empower people to think beyond the scope of their kind of kind of current role and and what they perceive as their their day to day. Um, duties which which are clearly kind of paramount but also giving people the space and the opportunity to innovate and and to research and to think about doing things differently um, and unless we allow the people time to do that um, then all we'll get is um, business as usual and more of the same and and even before covid we knew that that wasn't going to sustain healthcare services well into the next century we know that we have continued rising demand, we have continued complexity of patients presenting at the front door of the emergency department. We know that we have 
finite budget um, and healthcare is, is very expensive um, uh, for everyone. So we know that we've got to do things differently, but I think there was a lack of understanding of how to do things differently, how to break down barriers um, uh, and how to engage the workforce in, in sort of large scale organization and behavioral change. And I think we've broken down a lot of those boundaries now because um, the question isn't, can we do it? Because COVID has shown us that we can. Can we rapidly change the way we deliver services? Can we rapidly introduce social distancing? Can we rapidly introduce video consultations in primary care? Can we introduce rapid testing across a whole population um, uh, in a, 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 a you know, affordable, um, reliable, rapid testing in a short space of time? And actually the answer to all those questions were yes, um, because there was a willingness and because we were reacting to this emergency. And now the question is, as we start to deal with the backlog and we start to get routine services back on track again as we emerge from this latest lockdown, is how do we sustain how do we sustain that behaviour and that thinking? Um, and how do we see those benefits um, as sustained for the long term? And I think leaders now have a role to play um, in the sense of not just thinking, okay, how do we reset back to normal? Um, but actually, how do we reset to the new normal? And you know, how do we bring, how do we build in resilience within our workforce um, and flexibility, um, and particularly around flexible working environments? Um, and whether that's you know people working from home, whether that's more affordable childcare, you know, more uh, flexible working times or flexible roles, it's about leaders being open to changes in traditional sort of um, thinking about um, their teams, how they manage their teams, where their teams are, and what those teams um, are, are being asked to deliver. And, and, and actually, you know, we've seen from the pandemic that if you put motivated, committed, intelligent people in a room together, they will find a way. Um, and actually, it's, it's us not allowing them to get in the room together and giving them the time to thrash out the solutions that has actually been the barrier there. It's, it's not, it's not people themselves who've delivered the services. It's been, it's been management teams. It's been culture. It's been, you know, the hierarchy, the systems. Um, so if we can focus care and focus our services going forward around the individuals, the teams that are delivering them and, and the consumers on the other end of that, um, then, you know, as leaders, um, our job is to put, you know, intelligent people, uh, you know, empower them to come up with solutions and then get out of their way and let them get on with it. Um, and I think that's what, as healthcare systems, we haven't been as good at doing. Yeah, I mean, I think you've actually touched upon that you, we've seen this wholesale cultural change almost overnight with COVID, and now it just needs to be a case of, well, let's have the structural change that can accommodate, you know, you know more representation of all these people in society. But I think, you know, a lot of people would have will have listened to this and just thought, these two people are just talking about everything needs to change. But we've actually, there have actually been a couple of programs that have been in place in the first place to try and promote this kind of change in the first place. For example... Innovate UK's Women in Innovation Awards, but I th the, 
you'd, you'd probably want that kind of thing in the future not to become so remarkable because you, you'd want it on a level level playing field with the rest of it, if you follow me. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think things like awards and, and quotas, for example, or for, for, for representation on boards have their place as, as short-term measures in terms of how can we achieve, you know, kind of rapid change in a relatively short period of time. So, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not against quotas and awards. I mean, I must admit, I've, I've, been, I've been asked to join um, a number of, you know, women in innovation networks over the years. And, and, and in the beginning, I used to always slightly resist because I used to slightly resist the idea that I needed to join a women-only network and, and, and that, um, you know, for me, it was less about my gender and, and more about, um, you know, what I, what I wanted to achieve. And, and I was lucky to always work in organisations where I, I, I never felt a, a glass ceiling. Um, so for me, I, I, I kind of never felt the need, but, but I think now that I'm a little bit older, one of the things that I see is, um, you know, repeatedly and kind of bringing it back to the nurses, unless people see people like themselves, unless they can feel representation and they can see people like themselves in power, in the boardroom, being innovators, becoming CEOs of companies, becoming venture capitalists, which is, you know, still unfortunately a, a male, um, a, a relatively white dominated industry. And unless people see themselves represented, then they don't kind of dream of achieving that for themselves. Um, so I think representation does matter. Visibility matters. Um, and so therefore, you know, I think things like the, the Innovate UK Awards, you know, definitely have their place. I very much hope that one day they won't be needed. Um, but I think um, I think at the moment they, they unfortunately they probably still are, um, and they they definitely have a place in 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 promoting visibility and representation short term. Um, but um, you know to get longer term change, we need really behavioural change, I think, and, and and kind of system change. Yeah, I mean visibility, visibility and representation. It's it's almost like. There's the role model to point to, uh, in essence. I mean, I think we talked about uh, the imposter syndrome thing, and it, it all ties in nicely. That if there's if there's willingness at the top to put these pe put people in place who look who are more representative of society, it's for the benefit of everybody, and, and a lot more people can say, "I can do that." Yeah, exactly, and and it's and and you know it's empowering people to do it as well. So you know, giving people the confidence, giving them the training and the skills, um, but but making it um, you know making it clear that those pathways are available to people who look like them, um, you know, whatever whatever they look like. So um, and 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 that's on us um, to make sure that those pathways are are available. Um, and um, uh, awards, you know, and, um, uh, you know, quotas have their role in, in doing that. Um, but then it's about, um, uh, you know, educating people um, and giving them the, the skills um, and, and the experience um, and the opportunity to take risks um, and move slightly outside of their comfort zone. Um, you know, we've got to give people opportunities sometimes, and, and maybe take it, take it, take risks on people, um, rather than just think. Um, you know, whenever I'm recruiting a new board member, I think, oh well, you know, you know, I need, I need experience, 
um, uh, 20, 30 years experience of someone in the med tech commercial industry. Well, actually, you know, do I need that? Or do I need fresh ideas? Do I need diversity of thinking? You know, do I need someone who will come in and challenge us and saying, well, I know that's the way we've been doing it for the last 20 years, but why have we been doing it that way for the last 20 years? And have you thought about this? So, you know, we have to be open to be, to thinking differently and being challenged. And the only way that we'll do that is by allowing people who perhaps, you know, haven't been embedded in, you know, the system for um, 20, 30 years who, who um, you know, just aren't, perhaps aren't as open to change and to new ways of thinking. Yeah, I, I was just thinking of a sporting analogy there where, where you, you see, you know, football teams or rugby teams, they, they sign a couple of more players just to basically stay at the top of the game. And it's a case of, well, there's the fresh blood, the fresh ideas, the fresh way of thinking. And it's it's the same in, in diversity, really. If you actually just have, you know, people with different ways of thinking at a higher level, you, you're probably going to steal a march on, on other companies that aren't. Um, this probably actually brings us nicely to your report that you're working on, because if there were... I'm going to ask if you can have a couple of things that you would directly recommend that can be enforced almost immediately with a view to long-term change. What would they be? I know it's pretty open-ended, so apologies for that. No, that's fine. So I think I think um, you know there are a couple of things we 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 talked about venture funding. If we if we talk about industry for a second, you know I you know increased funding targeted towards specific groups, I think is, is much needed. Um, and, um, and I think diversity within venture teams is, is, is part of that as well. Because again, you know, people tend to invest in things, other people, opportunities that, that they understand and that they feel represent their, their experiences. So um, we need diversity um, greater diversity within the VC industry. And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see VCs which are, um, you know, specifically uh, focused and, and angel networks that are specifically focused around that. Um, so I think, um, and, I, and I think the British Business Bank and, and the government and Innovate UK have um, uh, have a role to play there around targeting funding specifically um, towards certain groups. We talked already about flexible working arrangements. You touched on on COVID, um, making uh, uh, health inequalities more um, uh, obvious in society. But I think you know it's it's impacted um, uh, women negatively as well. You know, women still carry the burden of most of childcare um, uh, arrangements, and um, also as as carers for the, for the sick and the elderly. So. Um, you know, I think women have been disproportionately affected um, by um, working arrangements, having to work from home and, and also manage um, uh, many other um, responsibilities. So I think you know, there is still a need for affordable, flexible childcare um, that we're not addressing. Um, uh, and um, so I think that's an area that uh, we could do with focusing on. I think... Um, we touched on sort of peer representation and I think, you know, increased non-financial support for entrepreneurs locally and giving people access to mentors, to networks that they can join um, so that they can, um, you know, they've got someone that they can pick up the phone to um, and just say, you know, I've got this problem, no one's listening to me, you know, or, you know, I don't know who to talk to to fix this. Where do I hire a CTO? 
you know, how do I find an accountant? You know, people want to um, talk to people um, uh, locally who, who, who look and sound like them. So I think, um, and, and again, some of those networks are, um, are already there, but they can always be enhanced. And then I think, you know, we, we talked as well about, um, you know, some of our inequalities and our, and our attitudes um, uh, to inequalities, you know, start very early. So um, definitely we need to think about how we engage and empower more young people from all backgrounds into, into STEM careers. Um, so, you know, the percentage of girls studying STEM subjects beyond GCSE is still still only 35%. So, um, and yet it's almost equal the year before that. So why is that? Why do so many girls decide that, you know, uh, STEM careers are not for them? You know, why are, I think UNESCO did a study um, uh, last year that said, you know, less than a, a, a third of researchers worldwide um, are, are female. So, you know, clearly there is a reason why people are not identifying those careers as appropriate for them. Um, and it's, I, I don't believe it's because they can't do it, um, but I believe they're choosing other careers um, uh, for other reasons. So, um, you know, those, those are a few things that I, I think we could focus on um, in the short term. You've, you've mentioned the... Uh... Um, the lack of girls studying, studying STEM subjects beyond 16, or beyond GCSE, rather. Um, I'm just thinking, and, and we've also linked that to the, you know, the need for, uh, how can I put this, the need for, for perceptions to start early. And I'm just thinking, this isn't just a, a health issue, really. It's, an, it's also an education issue, as in the education system, in terms of, you know, how to, promote or how to you know basically how to refine attitudes and how to better attitudes at, at such a young age and, and it comes back ties back nicely to the to the role model case as well i mean it, it's all linked to link this isn't just you know one section of society to sort out this has to be wholesale oh absolutely and i i think and i think it's not just the role of the educators i think it's also a role as parents as well to empower our children to feel that whatever uh, career that they want to take up, that they can do it, that there aren't, you know, that these, um, you know, that they can overcome these barriers um, and, and not encourage them down a path um, based on their gender or, or based on, um, you know, any other aspect of, of their background. So, um, you know, that is a, a role that I think politicians have um, uh, and, and we have as a society um, to make it clear that wherever you're from, whatever your background, whatever your colour, whatever your race, um, uh, whatever your sexuality or gender, that, um, you know, these careers are open to you, not just open to you, but actually we welcome you coming into these, coming into these, uh, these subjects and, and these careers. Um, thank you very much for speaking such, well, in such detail about this. It's obviously a very important issue. And I'm sure we're going to hear more and more about it going forward. Thanks to Anne Blackwood for joining us and thank you for listening. You can like, rate and subscribe via all the usual podcast platforms. Anne will be back with us in a few weeks' time as we discuss innovations from COVID and whether they will be lasting. In the meantime, thanks for listening and see you next time.